Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, Episode 95 for the week ending, March 23rd, 2018, the March Madness is Truly Mad This Year edition. This Week in FCPA is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, Jay and I touch on a wide variety of topics, including Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, the largest whistleblower award ever, some recent developments around bribery and corruption in the United Kingdom, including a recent prosecution by the Serious Fraud Office, where a company raised the adequate procedures defense for the first time. We take a look at the specifics of some very troubling whistleblower reports indicating increased retaliation and consider it all in the context of the Digital Realty Trust versus Summers case. We talk about our upcoming events and for both myself, Jonathan Armstrong of Quarterly Compliance, who will be coming to Houston to put on a GDPR workshop and events where Jay's colleagues from Affiliated Monitors will be speaking. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 95 for the week ending, March 23, 2018. The March Madness is Truly Mad This Year edition. As always, joined by Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. Uh, we got lots of March madness to speak about. So let's uh, jump right in and uh, let's talk about Cambridge Analytics, Facebook, and the U.S. electoral uh, vulnerability. So, Jay, this um, this story is just so all-encompassing on so many fronts. Uh, this may be uh, one of the stories of the year, and here we are even in March. And I say that because... From an economic perspective, uh, Facebook has lost, I think, uh, nearly $40 billion in value. Uh, the U.S. stock market went down uh, 2.5% because Facebook tanked, uh, also in conjunction with other news about a potential trade war from the administration. But um, the reverberations by these revelations are just uh, almost mind-boggling. So let's start with uh, Cambridge Analytica. First, I would note that I'm glad I went to Oxford, not Cambridge, so I'm not associated with this. Um, number two is that the uh, the CEO of uh, Cambridge is apparently quite uh, quite a character, and he believes in um, uh, bribery, corruption, uh, using sex traps to film and compromise candidates, and said all this on a video. So um, I think that really speaks to the type of organization Cambridge Analytica is, 
and um, where it may be heading. So um, Cambridge Analytica stole uh, 51 million, 50 million plus users data from Facebook and allegedly used that to uh, throw the election to Donald Trump. Um, they did it, Jay, in a way um, they had a third party app on Facebook that you could um, log into affirmatively and some 259 a hundred thousand people did that. Now those people uh, agreed that Cambridge Analytica could harvest their data. Fair enough uh, on both sides, both the uh, the people who agreed to it by utilizing the app and Cambridge Analytica. But what Cambridge Analytica did then was harvest the data from those two hundred and fifty nine thousand users' friends. So, uh, and those friends did not agree to have their data stolen, did not agree to have their data harvested, and did not agree to have their data used. And that's where we get to the 50 million uh, plus. So, um, uh, just a massive data breach. Uh, Facebook comes out of this just with much more than egg on their face. Uh, turns out that um, Facebook had known about this for over three years and had done basically nothing. And uh, since at least last summer, Facebook had known of uh, the Russian hacking and utilizing Facebook to um, put ad fake news in place and did nothing. Uh, the person who raised it within Facebook uh, is basically, as an internal whistleblower, not going to the public, not going anywhere else, has um, basically been run out of the company. The whistleblower um, in England... Um, who uh, blew the whistle on the Cambridge Analytica um, uh, breach or data theft and uh, utilization of the Facebook data. Uh, Facebook (laughs) deleted his account. So this does not speak very well of a company that wants to uh, um, take – take responsibility for its actions. It doesn't speak very well for how the company has policed itself. Mark Zuckerberg uh, uh, received withering criticism first because he hid behind the excuse that he wanted to marshal all the facts before he went on the public record. Uh, He has now gone on the public record. He gave a speech. Uh, He did admit this was a major trust issue and that there were actions Facebook was taking. Uh, Initially, Facebook was going to do a forensic Data analysis of Cambridge Analytica, which apparently has the right to do so. It's now backed off on that because the UK government uh, has indicated it's going to uh, take uh, take that investigation. Um, Zuckerberg did in an interview with the New York Times uh, give three concrete actions um, that they uh, Facebook was going to take. First, they were going to reduce the amount of data developer developers have access to. Uh, the uh, then they were going to look at other uh, developers to see if they had uh, stolen basically information and that um, finally uh, Facebook was going to more uh, closely police their apps. I would note that um, when uh, three years ago when it, it was first put out to Facebook or made known to Facebook that Cambridge Analytica had stolen this data, the response of Facebook was to uh, ask Cambridge Analytica if they'd done that. Cambridge Analytica denied it. Facebook asked for a certification to that effect, which Cambridge Analytica provided to them. Uh, Facebook did no audit, no internal investigation, no investigation of Cambridge Analytica uh, at all. So just a incredibly pathetic response. Um, 
for from Facebook, but the um, uh, this led has led to a FTC investigation of um, uh, Facebook, and the um, FTC is taking a look at uh, whether or not this response by Facebook and allowing this data to be collected by Cambridge Analytica, whether it be by hook, nook, crook, or theft, uh, whether that violates a 2013 um, a privacy uh, or, or uh, resolution of an FTC enforcement action. And if Facebook broke that agreement, it could fine the company up to $40,000 for each violation. So that's a, a pretty huge uh, potential fine. But Really, the um, Cambridge Analytica, obviously, uh, incredibly um, bad tone at the top. Whether uh, You have to suspect that permeated the entire organization. Facebook's response was, uh, me no alamo, and uh, it's not my fault, uh, not my job, uh, don't ask me, um, which was equally bad. Uh, data privacy experts are just uh, up in arms over the Facebook response. Facebook response going forward uh, is uh, going to be seen, but the market sanction, frankly, is probably the part that uh, stunned me the most, Jay. Uh, $40 billion in uh, nearly $40 billion in value disappeared, and the U.S. stock market uh, almost tanked uh, simply on the bad news of Facebook. Now, once again, it was compounded by other steps by the administration. Nevertheless, um, when you have one company who takes a day a hit and the entire market takes a hit from it, uh, that really speaks to the power of Facebook and how important it is, uh, both in the U.S. economy and the, the U.S. Uh, kind of psyche and just stalled. Yeah, just um, in, incredible ramifications of what's happening. Um, I happen to catch a <clears throat> bit of an interview that uh, Zuckerberg did with CNN and um, the reporter asked him if he felt that um, Facebook should be regulated. And he gave a very interesting answer. And he said, um, well, it definitely should be regulated. The question is just how much. So uh, that, I think, is is an interesting position now that, um, you know, everything that's happening with uh, the upcoming uh, data privacy stuff happening in the EU and what we're seeing now, I, I mean, this is uh, really going to be something that I think the the government is going to use as an opportunity. And the question is, is do we have representatives here who can fairly go out and can they uh, in a bipartisan manage uh, by part partisan uh, effort? Can they manage a situation like this or is it going to come down just to the other um you know, just the, the same old same old noise that we hear out of D.C. So I think there's much more to come on this. And uh, it's uh, interesting. We're going to talk about whistleblowers in a minute. So uh, also, Tom, the way you said they treated the whistleblowers, both the internal one at Facebook and the um, gentleman at uh, Cambridge Analytica, it's just kind of kind of shocking that uh, they would treat their employees this way. And I should note, really, the internal uh, Facebook whistleblower, he really wasn't a whistleblower, Jay. He was a senior executive, and he raised the um, the uh, data hacking by uh, the Russians and the fake news. 
and tried to get Facebook to uh, be more transparent. And for his efforts, he uh, his department of 140 people was stripped out from under him. There's now he and two others in his department, and uh, they're basically uh, he's resigned to pursue other opportunities this coming summer. So it really speaks to uh, probably the paranoia at Facebook, but certainly their opaqueness and lack of transparency. Yep. All right. So that, I think, sets the table for um, we've got an article from uh, Dick Casson about the SEC awards three whistleblowers $83 million, And the Security and Exchange Commission made its biggest ever whistleblower award on Monday. It gave a single person $33 million and then it split nearly $50 million between two others. The previous high for an SEC award was $30 million in 2014, and um, Dick reprinted parts of an uh, um, email from Labaton Souchereau. Hope I'm saying it's right. Uh, they're a whistleblower firm, and uh, basically uh, the, the charges were that Merrill Lynch over many years had executed complex option trades that lacked economic substance and artificially reduced the required deposit of customer cash in the reserve account. In June of 2016, Merrill Lynch admitted to the wrongdoing and paid $415 million. Um, Labaton Sushiro referred the 2016 Merrill Lynch settlement in, in, in its statement on Monday. And basically, what's very interesting about this, and we also pick up an, an article from um, Matt Kelly's Radical Compliance, is that uh, it says that the two whistleblowers who shared the $50 million award uh, basically could have got more, but there was an unreasonable delay in them taking their complaints directly to the SEC, while the other single whistleblower, uh, the $33 million, went to the SEC right away. So when you take that and you kind of compare it against uh, what happened several weeks ago with the Supreme Court, court's ruling in digital realty, um, it really does not promote a culture where people should speak up. And if they're going to be whistleblowers, they seem to get have a higher uh, potential win and they will get more protections extended to them if they go directly to the SEC. So um, your thoughts on that? So let me just add a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, I really uh, was struck by a point Matt raised, and it's the following, that the uh, SEC considers numerous factors when deciding how much money to award whistleblowers, quality of information, amount of information, extent of cooperation, et cetera. Any of these factors can be a reason a, a whistleblower award goes up or goes down. Um, but here, uh, the factor was timeliness. Of the award, which caused the um, there were three whistleblowers. Whistleblowers one and two submitted jointly. Uh, they received fifty million jointly, and then whistleblower three uh, submitted separately and received thirty three million. And the SEC clearly suggested the lack of timeliness was one of the reasons why whistleblowers one and two did not get as much as they um, could have. Uh, however, they did provide a lot of high-quality information and cooperation along the way, in-person meetings, conference calls, supplemental uh, documents, identification of other key witnesses. So I found it interesting that timeliness actually reduced the award. 
And then if I could maybe uh, pivot over to a couple of other points, um, Kevin LaCroix today wrote about this case, Jay, in his uh, most excellent DNO diary. And he, he had three other points that I think were, were worthy of mention. Uh, first of all was what I ended with, Matt, that there was uh, – it gives you some information about what the whistleblowers presented, and this is whistleblowers one and two. Uh, specific and detailed information, which served as the cornerstone of the SEC's subsequent investigation and enforcement action. I mentioned the uh, meetings, calls, and supplemental. Uh, but also the second whistleblower. So we had one and two together and then whistleblower three. He was the second in line, and he provided information that was previously unknown to the SEC and triggered a second separate investigation contributing to the SEC's success. And then the third uh, was um, a point that these three individuals were not the only whistleblowers on this matter. There were other whistleblowers, but the SEC determined that these individuals were not entitled to a award because the information they provided did not lead to a successful enforcement action, nor did it cause the SEC to commence an examination, reopen uh, or reopen or, or give them different information um, than they had already received. So a lot of really interesting things going on here. And Jay, if we could maybe tie this back to the Digital Realty Trust versus Summers case from the Supreme Court in February, I think you can uh, really only conclude that you have to go immediately to the SEC now. And uh, given the size of these awards, uh, Matt uh, really emphasized how much larger the awards could have been. Could have been 30% of uh, $415 million dollars. So um, uh, that means whistleblowers one and two uh, left uh, quite a bit of money on the table because of their lack of timeliness. And when you put that kind of financial penalty on people, coupling it with the lack of any protections, at least under Dodd-Frank, if you report internally, um, I think uh, people are not going to walk, but they're going to run or get in their car or maybe even take a bullet train. Uh, to uh, submit to the uh, to the SEC. So really interesting follow on. And I just have to end with this. Um, Jordan Thomas, who was the partner in charge at Labaton Labaton Sushiro, um, as the lead lawyer in this, he was featured on the front page of the wall of the uh, New York Times. So uh, the moral of that story is be the top guy and you get in the top newspaper. So hats off to Jordan. Uh, I know uh, some of his partners uh, I had an interview with Stephen Durham, one of his partners, uh, this week on my podcast, the FCPA Compliance Report, and uh, it was really a, a team effort. But Jordan, uh, he started this whistleblower practice there, and uh, hats off to uh, Jordan on a on a huge success by the SEC. Good stuff. So Tom, over uh, seas on the other side of the pond, we have an article uh, written by uh, some attorneys at CMS. And it appeared in the, uh, what is it, the New York um, University um, website, right. at NYU Compliance. And it says, jury is out on compliance in the first test of the Bribery Act's adequate procedures defense, spelled with a C. So uh, what's that all about? So we had some uh, interesting information, uh, news rather, out of the uh, UK this this week, Jay. And if I can hold off on that one to the end uh, of our UK, maybe we need a, a UK segment. 
uh, okay. have Jonathan kind of slide in and, and give us a UK segment in the future. But uh, let me go through some of these stories and, and end up with that case because I'd like to spend a little time on it. First of all okay. was that uh, there's apparently a big problem in Scotland for the uh, use of shell companies where the ultimate beneficial owners are not known. And interestingly, both the Labour Party and the Scottish National Party um, have asked to crack down on those. Now, the UK government is conservative, so it's a different party, but even Prime Minister May has uh, indicated she would like to uh, to take a look at this and, and crack down on the dirty Russian money flowing into the United Kingdom. So perhaps we'll have some information on that. The second is the Serious Fraud Office was able to recover a bribe paid to a Chad, Chadian, I guess would be the word, foreign government official, as a bribe uh, from the Canadian company Griffiths Energy. So uh, kudos to the F- SFO for uh, getting an award to uh, get the money back. They spent four years trying to recover these proceeds, and it will be transferred to the UK's Department for International Development, which will identify projects in Chad to invest in to benefit the poor of, uh, of uh, the country. And finally, um, and those two articles uh, from the Wall Street Journal came from our good friend and colleague Sam Rubenfeld, and also by Mara Lamos-Stein in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, uh, their online publication that is uh, really one of the top compliance sites that you need to take, take a look at every day if you're not, is an article that the um, UK's Financial Conduct Authority has launched a consultation uh, basically asking for public comment on uh, its decision-making framework for identification, diagnosis, remedy, and evaluation of potential violations. So um, I think it's always great, Jay, when the regulator, whether it be in the United Kingdom or in the United States, really asks for comment from from the public and certainly from the constituents who are in front of them, whether that be uh, people like yourself who are providing a service, people like myself, maybe more of a commentator, and then uh, certainly practitioners and companies who go before regulators. So kudos to the FCA for that. And now if I could spend a little bit of time on the article you referenced entitled The Jury is Out on Compliance in the First Test of the Bribery Act's Adequate Procedures Defense. Uh, this case was uh, went to trial in the United Kingdom, involved Scanson Interiors Limited, um, and their, uh, one of their managing direct directors had paid a bribe. He, uh, he had offered to pay a sub- subsequent or second bribe, which was uh, uh, stopped by the company. Uh, the company initiated an internal investigation, turned uh, discovered the bribery act had been violated, fired uh, the individuals involved, and turned the information over to the serious fraud office. Uh, so, uh, and then the serious fraud office really did what I thought was a very interesting action. Jay, they brought a criminal action against the company. They, uh, they did uh, bring criminal actions against the two former employees who pled guilty. The company tried to claim, or rather claimed as, an, un, as its defense, that it met the adequate procedures part of uh, a defense which is available under Section 7 prosecution. This was a, a section, what's called a Section 7 prosecution. And it basically tried to claim, the company tried to claim, look, we're a small 30-person outfit. We don't have a lot of money. We tell people not to pay bribes, and we expect um, that kind of conduct. Uh, we have posters which say, you know, don't pay bribes, uh, and that's our defense. And, of course, that was completely uh, seen through by the jury. This was not a court case or, excuse me, trial by judge. So we had a jury who saw through this, and they were convicted. 
But it really brings up a couple of points that I think merit further discussion. The first of all, it turns out that um, the company itself, Scansa Limited, had uh, gone dormant. So it's no longer exists. So number one, why are you wasting time uh, bringing a criminal action against a dormant company? And then two, and perhaps the most troubling issue that I'm still struggling with myself, Jay, is uh, what's the incentive of a company to self-disclose if you're going to be criminally prosecuted? Now, I understand that um, in the United States, we have deferred prosecution agreements uh, making a company subject to criminal prosecution, but I've been, I can't think of a case uh, that went to trial, FCPA case that went to trial on a criminal side where the company self-disclosed their actions. Uh, you're going to get some credit for that. And so the question is, what incentives does this give UK companies to, to self-report if you're going to um, uh, be criminally prosecuted? Uh, my suspicion would be that since they thought they were dormant, they wouldn't be. Um, so a uh, really interesting case. Uh, I commend uh, everyone to read the article because it lays out in detail uh, Scanson's defense, which uh, I just highlighted some of the more inane ones <laughs> that I thought were inane. And that um, if you don't have a full anti-bribery, anti-corruption policy and implement it along the guidelines of either adequate procedures, six principles of adequate procedures, or uh, the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, you're going to be convicted. All right. So that brings us to uh, the home stretch here. First thing we want to talk about is something from uh, Ben DiPietro and the uh, Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance uh, uh, column, and this is from earlier this week, and um, Pat Harned and the group at the Ethics and Compliance Initiative have uh, come forward with uh, a whistleblowing benchmark report, and it's uh, very timely, uh, especially with what we've just been talking about. And uh, the findings were that 69% of respondents said that they reported misconduct they saw, and that was up from 64% in 2013. So while that seems to be a good figure, uh, bad news is for those coming forward to report the problems, the number of people who said they suffered retaliation for speaking up rose to 44% from 22%. And normally there's a very close uh, correlation between the rise in reporting and uh, any increases. So um, in terms of why this may be happening, uh, Ms. Harned said it's hard to say exactly why. It could be the kind of misconduct people are reporting is more serious or may involve their own supervisors. Uh, any way you look at it, it's a troubling thing. When workers have high rates of retaliation, they are far less likely to report things in the future. And the worst news in the survey was that there is minimal progress that companies are making creating cultures where their employees think are strong and grounded in good values. About 21% said they work at a company with a strong culture, up from 18% in 2003. Uh, these numbers could be vastly improved, she said. Across the country, there is no evidence companies are really taking steps to drive a stronger culture. And despite the fact that we know that, it doesn't appear that across the U.S. there has been enough of an effort to really address it. So this really um, 
you know, the, the, the numbers tell the story. And uh, especially in this, the last story we were just speaking about, about going directly to the SEC, it really seems to paint a very bleak picture if you are a compliance officer at a publicly traded or even a private company, that if uh, your employees feel that they don't have the ability to uh, address problems and bring them to you, uh, if the remedy instead is going to be going right to the SEC, it sounds like um, we need to uh, relook at some of the deterrence factors and some of the uh, uh, way we are trying to incentivize our workforce to speak up. And Jay, do you, uh, in light of this report uh, from Ben, do you, and then the whistleblower issues we raised earlier, both in the uh, Facebook matter and the uh, the whistleblower award, um, we should note that that whistleblower award, it turned out the whistleblown company was Merrill Lynch. But the uh, issue against Merrill Lynch, do with this sort of um, information, do you draw, and of course the Supreme Court case, Digital Realty Trust, do you think it's even going to uh, uh, lead to greater or larger numbers of uh, SEC reports, or do you, do you not link those two? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the SEC reports go up. But I think what's going to be interesting, and you said we're only in March now, so um, you know the, there seems to be just an incredible amount of news flow that we're digesting every week. And um, it's, it sounds like uh, we need to start to rethink things because the position that we find uh, compliance officers are in, and especially people who want to do the right thing in companies, it sounds like the past deterrent effect <clears throat> have not really helped much at all. And especially with those, those dismal numbers, I don't know if... Uh, we can make any correlation between the uh, morass that we're in politically and the fact that people don't listen to each other. They talk at each other and um, wondering if we are starting to see uh, a similar issue arise uh, within internal and ethics and compliance policies within companies. So I think this is something that uh, we're definitely going to have to um continue to keep an eye on as stories come out. But I guess the point I want to maybe throw back for you and certainly in your role as Mr. Monitors and with affiliated monitors is, is, is this something that uh, a cultural survey or a culture audit can help detect so that a company can have the opportunity to uh, remediate this issue or is is that something uh, really completely different in your in your mind? No, I, I think you raise a great point, Tom. That what we're starting to see within the marketplace, and you know, just using this three month sample uh, size, is that we have lots of folks and companies reaching out to us, and instead of waiting for the fact that whether or not they sign some type of instrument, a deferred prosecution agreement, saying they need a monitor. Uh, they're looking at bringing in people like ourselves to do a proactive ethics and culture assessment. So uh, the thought would be is if you discover something internally that's happening, 
not only are you going to want to bring in uh, forensics folks or outside counsels to run an investigation, but concurrently they're looking at bringing in ethics and compliance experts like ourselves to initially help with a risk assessment to try to look for where there might be failures in control and to immediately begin remediating. And should they actually go forward and have to go to a regulator, uh, we feel that they will be in a much stronger position because they can show concrete action that they've taken to not only uh, investigate, but also to begin the remediation process. I think we're going to have to uh, to watch this one. And, and really, the I don't want to s- say we've seen a theme, but it, you know, Q1's theme may just be the whistleblower and, and all the ramifications we've been talking about. So uh, uh, we may have to take that one up on everything compliance, Jay. Okay. And uh, we got one last story. We'll get it in under the wire. Um, Uber brings on uh, brings in the Holder Report co-author as deputy general counsel, and Angela Padilla is out. So uh, Tammy Alberon, who is a partner at Covington and Burling, and uh, participated with Eric Holder in putting together the uh, Uber Report, will uh, soon be joining them as their uh, general counsel. And uh, she will be second in command to the chief legal officer, Tony West, who was appointed late last year after leading the legal department at PepsiCo. Um, and basically, West said he is thrilled that Tammy has agreed to help him lead Uber's in-house legal team. She will be his trusted right-hand partner as they navigate some of the most interesting, dynamic, and difficult legal challenges facing the company. So what remains to be seen is they still have not brought on a chief compliance and ethics officer. So it'll be interesting to see who they fill that space with and whether or not um, Tony West brings over any of his former colleagues from PepsiCo. So we'll be watching that one as well. So, Jay, I have to ask this. And, and of course, this is on, an on-the-record question. I, I've re- It's recently come to my attention that your house is on the market. Does this portend a potential move to the CCO seat at Uber in Northern California? Uh, no, it, it, it portends a move further west to better, better schools. But, um, no, I, I will not be going up to Silicon Valley. Thank you for asking, though. Well, um, that's a great cover story. So um, we may have to watch that one with a little more jaundiced eye now. Now it's all becoming clearer to me. Uh, the whole timing and everything. So, uh, but we'll watch that story as well, Jay. All right. Tell us about your upcoming movements, what's happening with the book and anything else we need to know for the weekend. Right. So let me start though with uh, my new podcast series, Innovation and Compliance, where I had uh, Vince Walden from EY and the response, Jay, was just unbelievable. I had over 3,000 distinct impressions on the first day. I'm up over 5,000 now. Uh, that's my greatest one day for any podcast. So check out Innovation and Compliance, available on the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, Libsyn, and uh, JD Supra. Uh, book sales are still, pre-sales are brisk for the Complete Compliance Handbook. You can check that out on my uh, website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com. If you are in Houston, you absolutely positively need to come to the Gerber Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable half-day workshop on GDPR. Jonathan Armstrong is flying over from um, 
the United Kingdom uh, to put on a half-day workshop. It is Tuesday, April 10th. It will uh, $75 if you're a non-member. It's free if you're a member. Uh, this is a must-attend if you are in Houston. Um, I am going to be leading some conversant roundtables, Jay, in Miami on April 4th, in Houston on April 17th, and Dallas on April 18th. And I'm really excited because they've asked me to talk about using data to drive ethics to the center of business. So um, I'm going to use uh, a lot of the materials I've developed for the Innovation and Compliance series and really speak about how you can use data to drive uh, ethics to the center of your business and, I think, make you more efficient and more profitable. Um, I think, uh, actually, I wanted to ask uh, you um, uh, about the uh, SCCE European Compliance and Ethics Institute, uh, what Eric and team are up to, and uh, information about uh, that event. Sure. So uh, this event starts at uh, Sunday, and this year the European Ethics Compliance uh, Institute is in Frankfurt. As always, it starts off with a volunteer project at 8 in the morning. Um, Eric will be there as long as my um, colleague Maria from Spain will have a booth and uh, will be participating. And, uh, you know, some of our key uh, SCCE friends will be there. Um, Samantha Kellen will be there. Adam Turtletaub. Uh, Jonathan will be there as well. Jonathan Armstrong. So, um uh, if you're already on route to Frankfurt, please uh, stop by and see my colleagues at the uh, affiliated monitors booth. Other thing I wanted to uh, also mention on the conversant front that on Wednesday, April 4th, uh, Eric Feldman from affiliated monitors will be participating in um, a webinar with the folks from conversant. So we'll be uh, publicizing that. And then uh, in terms of uh, conversant roundtables, uh, we will be participating with one in uh, Boston on June 21st. So uh, heads up on that. And Vin DiCiani will be appearing there. Um, last thing, did you want to go to number 11? And well, actually, I should say the kudos because you're one of the recipients, uh, Tom Fox, Mike Volkov and Matt Kelly, all from the Everything Compliance Roundtable, were named uh, top commentators for JD Supra for their 2017-2018 poll. And um, so congratulations, Tom. Uh, what exactly does this mean, the top 10? How do they figure that out? So it's actually um, JD Super, of course, it's a, a great platform for distribution of your written materials and indeed my uh, and our podcast series. Uh, they have a reader's poll every year and uh, every reader is asked to vote on the top uh, authors and submitters uh, such as myself in their field. And uh, actually, it's the third year in a row I've been number one in compliance. So I was extraordinarily honored for that. But uh, equally thrilled that uh, both Mike Volkoff and Matt Kelly, um, Mike has been on the list before. Uh, Matt is uh, his first timer, uh, but so we got uh, three of the five. And uh, I just want to say you better take your game up, Jay, because uh, we're expecting great things out of you this year. So uh, just be thinking about that. Okay. I, I think, you know, with the consistent shaming, I might be able to get some blogs up. Well, you know, it's all very New England, just more shame, guilt, and, you know, of course, your background. It all comes together. All right. When do the world champion uh, Houston Astros begin their quest for another title? 
The pennant will be raised at 6.30 p.m. on Monday, April 2nd. I can will only you be hope, there? I have tickets. I can only hope the University of Michigan will not be playing for the uh, NCAA National Championship that night because if they are, I'm going to have to take a pass on watching the game because I'm going to see him raise the pennant, something I never thought I would see in my lifetime. All right. So on behalf of Mr. Tom Fox, J.D. Supra recognized uh, blogger and the compliance evangelist and myself, Jay Rose and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 95 for the week ending March 23rd, 2018. The March Madness is truly mad this year edition. Thank you for joining us and have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. That is what help in our ratings and also get the word out about the only weekly compliance and ethics wrap-up podcast. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us again next week where we explore the top stories in compliance and ethics. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.